There we go. Well, I was with some friends. We were with some friends last night doing a very small uh, uh, COVID Halloween gathering. And uh, these folks are all believers. And so they asked me, hey, Stephen, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, narcissism. And they looked at me like I was crazy. I said, no, no, it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Everyone's going everyone's to love it because everyone loves this topic. Everyone uh, who, who has known a narcissist loves the topic, right? Um, everyone who is a narcissist loves this topic, right? No, this is, this is a tough one. This is a tough topic. And I got to tell you, um, before we kind of just dive in, you know, there are... There's so much around this topic that we're not going to address today. So, so everything that you wish I was going to say that I don't say, my apologies up front, uh, but there's just no way to get it all in. And I'm also very conscious of the time that it's, it's, it's already um, pretty late. So I think what, I'm, what I'd like to do today is I'd like to, to make this, this commitment to you. If this is something that we sense together the Lord wants us to spend more time on, we will come back to it. But we do want to keep up. We have one more week left, one more chapter left in our book study on the other half of church, and we want to finish that well. And, uh, but we can, we can come back. Because I actually think, I'm going, to, I'm going to hit you with a couple of stats real quick, that there's actually another book that I read on this topic related to the church recently. And it's called Pandora's Problem. Do you guys remember what Pandora's box is in Greek mythology? Uh, it's, one of the, it's this box, and if you open it, then basically all hell breaks loose. And once it's out of the box, you can't get it back. And the idea of the book is this, is that, that quite frankly, in our, in our churches, in our businesses, in our politics, the big elephant in the room is that, and that's actually not a political illusion, the big elephant in the room is that, that no one talks about is that oftentimes narcissists rule the day and no one ever says anything about it because if you try to stand up to someone who thinks they're always right if you try to stand up to someone who can never do wrong and if you try to stand up to someone who sees the greatest threat in the world as someone who's challenging their view of themselves then you are in for a ride my friends you're in for a very bumpy ride a very unpleasant ride but, and this is the big, the big contrary reality, is that if our faith and if our trust in Jesus Christ and if the power of the Holy Spirit means anything, then it has to be true that even those people can change. It has to be true. And if it's not true, then what are we doing here? But I'll tell you this, there are, there are psychologists and counselors who will not work with narcissists. Uh, one of the reasons is that when narcissists go to counseling, they get really good language to continue doing what they're already doing. So they're just empowered by the psychology. By the, they get the terminology that allows them to be better arguers, better self-justifiers. So a lot of counselors won't even, won't even work with a narcissist. And we're going to talk a little bit about what a narcissist is in a moment and the distinction between what we might call a, a, uh, someone with narcissistic tendencies and someone who is just a full-blown, uh, what's the word in psychology, diagnosed <laughs> narcissist. 
But it's, it's just, it's one of those realities that a lot of people won't even work with them. And I, I read this statistic that was actually quite scary. Uh, there was a study done, and I don't know enough about the study to know how they did it, but it was a study done of Dutch pastors. And they found that 70 to 90% of them struggled with narcissism. Pastors. There was a study done in the United States that said upwards of 110,000 pastors in the United States are narcissists. Now, I read that, and it scares me. I mean, it scares me for myself, because I think, well, that's a pretty high percentage. What are the chances that I'm not, that I'm not in that group? They seem pretty low, and that's, that's worrisome. Because what a narcissist is, according to the Scripture, and we'll kind of look at some scripture, we'll look at some psychology, we'll look at it from, from a, different, a couple of different angles. But um, a narcissist is someone who is stiff-necked. You know, in the Bible, you know, reading about stiff-necked people in the Bible, the Old Testament, you've got, it's in the Proverbs, it's in the Psalms, it's in the stories. Here it is in the book of Acts. This is from Acts chapter 7, uh, where, where the people of Israel are being called out by the disciples and they say, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's not just a great little definition for a narcissist right there, I mean, that's a great starting ground. People who are stiff-necked, who resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which I know this isn't the point of that, of that critique, but it does point out this reality that narcissism is something that is learned. It's learned from the people who've gone before us. And so if you have faced a narcissist in life, there's a good chance that you may struggle with these narcissistic tendencies as well. Now, my wife, Sonia, um, she's very, very incredibly gracious. So she talks about being on the spectrum, being on the spectrum. You know, we talk about autism being on a spectrum. She says, well, there are some people who are, who are narcissists rarely, and there are some people who are narcissists all the time. And she has never told me where I fall on that spectrum. Also, very graciously, very graciously. But she tells me, you're on the spectrum, but you're not over here. But that could mean here. It could mean here. I don't know. But, you know, again, it's the, the, this is a very challenging reality. But, but let's look a little deeper first to just what it is we're talking about. And then, and see what, what does God, what tools does God give us to face this challenge, both in ourselves and in others? So, um, a, a narcissist, by definition, is someone who feels self-justified. Self-justified. Or you could say self-righteous. Uh, they both go hand in hand. They are different. Self-righteousness is where you think that you're better than everyone else. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And self-justification is when you're always explaining away your problems, your failures, your shortcomings. Okay? Now, in Job chapter 40, do you guys know the story of Job? There's this guy named Job, and Job is righteous. He's a righteous man on the earth. And all of a sudden, these bad things start happening to Job. So first of all, uh, he, he's very wealthy, and he finds out that his herds and livestock have been captured by his enemies and, and his servants have been killed except for one who comes and tells him the tale 
of this treacherous action against him. And so he begins to lose his wealth. And then immediately after, another messenger comes and he says, your children were gathered in a party and, and the storm came and knocked the walls in and they all died except for me and I came to tell you what has happened. So he loses his children. And then, uh, for reasons that are made clear in the book of Job, Satan attacks him and attacks him in his body and he loses his health to the point that he's literally, you know, got these skin diseases and lesions and he's scraping his body with with broken shards of pottery because he has no relief from his pain and agony and suffering. And in the midst of it, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He refuses to curse God. So when you're, if you've ever been in a situation that's reminiscent of that and you think, but I'm going to hold on to my faith, then, you know, and you're, and you're doing your best to stay in the Lord, then rest assured that your best friends will come and try to ruin it for you. And that's what Job's friends do. They come and try to convince him that he's a sinner and these things are happening because he's a sinner. And then Job has a bit of a conundrum that he's in. Should he explain that he's actually righteous? Should he self-justify? Should he accept their arguments that he's a sinner? Should he accept their condemnation? So what he finally does after many, 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 many chapters <laughs> of arguing and listening and, and rebuking and responding with his friends is finally he says, I'm going to take my case to the God of the universe. And he does. He takes his case to the Lord. And he basically says, God, what's up? What the heck? Why is this happening to me? And the Lord shows up and he answers Job. By the way, it is way easier to challenge God than to have God answer, to actually show up and actually respond. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we do this kind of thing. We, we say, God, why are you doing this? The last thing we want is for him to actually answer our question. But Job gets his answer. The Lord said to Job, and by the way, this is kind of the crux of the whole book of Job, not that that's our focus today, but here it is. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. This, again, this is like the last thing you'd ever want to hear from God. But he walked right into it. And here's what God says in verse 8. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? <coughs> and friends, that is the quintessential reality for a narcissist is they will condemn anyone else to justify themselves. I'm not the problem here. You are. I'm not the one who did something wrong. You did. This wasn't wrong because they did X, Y, Z. Well, if your mother hadn't, or if the kids hadn't, or if my boss hadn't, 
Or if the neighbor hadn't, then none of this, I would never even done these things. And so I'm justified in doing them because of the circumstances that you or you have placed me in. Do you recognize any of that? Now, here's the, here's the, the challenge I'm going to give you before we go any further is your first thought for some of you will be to think of others who do these things. Some of you, your first thought will to think of how you do these things. Whatever your first thought is, make sure you also do the other one. You're not worse than everyone else. That's a type of narcissism. And you're not better than everyone else. That's another type of narcissism. We're going to talk about both types. So this is what narcissists do. They self-justify. Now, as I say this, I'm, I'm, my brain is being flooded of all the examples of my own moments of self-justification. But here's the thing. Who is it that justifies you? Jesus Christ justifies you. Are you able to justify yourself? Can you pay the penalty for your sins and live to tell the tale? Not at all. If that's true, if the gospel is true, and this is so key, if the gospel is true, self-justification should never be allowed. Only God can justify you. What about this? Narcissists trust their own judgment. This is part of, this is, I would say, this is the foundation of self-righteousness. It's because you are the ultimate judge of what is right and what is wrong. You guys know the story in Genesis 3, I imagine. But God creates in Genesis 1 this wonderful world. In Genesis 2, he fills it with all these wonderful things and develops this beautiful garden. And it's filled with fruit and trees and animals and plants. And Adam and Eve are there together in perfect harmony, in unity with the Lord. They walk in the cool of the day with the garden with God. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And God says, oh, but by the way, just as an aside, there is a couple of trees here. One's the tree of life. You eat that one, you know, you'll, you'll live forever. And there's another tree here called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that one is, is that's about understanding and wisdom. But don't eat that. You know why? Because I'm going to be your knowledge of good and evil, and I'm going to be your life. So you ever wonder why God puts these trees here or why those trees? What God is saying is, are you going to trust me to be what you need, or are you going to try to get it for yourself? Okay? That's the setup. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, who is a manifestation, well, not a, he's a snake-a-festation of, of Satan. The ser- <laughs> that was bad, right? <laughs> oh... The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, God didn't say that. He said you can eat from any tree in the garden except the, this one. Knowledge of good and evil. The woman said to the serpent, serpent We may eat fruit, fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of, garden, middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, we don't have any record of God saying you must not touch it. So she either added to the law or we missed something there. But there it is. And then Satan or the serpent says this, you will not certainly die. So he's calling God's truthfulness into question. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there is some truth to what this serpent says. 
but there's a great lie to it as well. So look what happens. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. This is where we get the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I mean, the, the lust of the... Oh, I forgot it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. See, it's good for food, for the body. It looks good. It's pleasing to the eye. And then her pride, she can gain wisdom. So she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See, Adam's wasn't at fault. It was this woman's fault. And the eyes of both of them were open, just like the serpent said. And here's, here's the key to the whole thing. If you didn't know the rest of the story, it's right here. So Satan says, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. So their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Was that true? Were they naked? Yes. Did they need to be covered? No. They wanted wisdom and they got false wisdom instead. Now what this passage should tell us is that we really are not in a position to truly judge good and evil, especially when it's about ourselves. The Lord is really the only one who is ever supposed to do that. He's the only one who's able to do it perfectly. And you could argue that every single time we try to justify or, or make a judgment about something, that we're always going to miss something. Is that fair? So you're always going to be at least partially wrong every time you make a judgment. Now, this is a bold claim. I'm making a bold claim here. But the point is this. What we really want is the Lord's judgment. We want the Lord's wisdom. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to be in a situation where when we're justifying ourselves and we're deciding for ourselves what is good and right and holy and righteous, so if you're self-righteous, you have judged yourself righteous. But by definition, you're wrong. By definition. And, and Paul says as much, no one's righteous. No, not one. Paul is sharing God's truth on the matter. And then finally, a narcissist resists shame. And I have it. Uh, right. Proverbs 12.1 just says this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But whoever hates correction is stupid. Yes, the Bible says that. And I, if I, I didn't actually look it up in the Hebrew, but I'm just guessing often the Hebrew is stronger than the English. You're an idiot. If you refuse correction, if you hate correction, if you can't stand shame, if you can't stand being wrong, if you can't stand being put in your place, the Bible says you're stupid. But this is exactly what we narcissists or people with narcissistic tendencies or people on the spectrum or the people around us who are narcissists do on a daily basis. And so when we look at narcissism in the Bible, we see the stiff-necked people who would rather accuse God than accuse themselves. We see people who 
like Adam and Eve, they desired to make their own judgments about themselves in the world instead of seeing God's judgments about themselves in the world. And like, uh, I think that's Solomon's proverb there in Proverbs 12, they hate correction, and so they're stupid, and they don't grow. They don't, they don't have a chance to, to change. And so if that's where it is in the Bible, where is it in me? It shows up when I'm self-righteous. It shows up when I'm defensive or you, when you're self-righteous and you're defensive. Deflecting, right? And these are all manifestations of the things that we just talked about. So being defensive, I'm self-justified. Being self-righteous, I'm using my own judgment. You know, deflecting, I can't stand shame, so I'm going to put that shame on you so I don't have to experience it. These are the actions that follow those realities. But there is another way that people manifest this narcissism, and that's when instead of becoming self-righteous, they become self-pitying. Have you ever talked to someone and you point out something they do and they say, oh, I know, I'm the worst ever. God could never forgive me. God could never love me. I've heard that. And it's just, it's weird because at first it looks like this incredible humility, but it's actually not humility, humility at all. Because humility is not thinking of yourself as lower than you are. It's thinking of yourself rightly. And ultimately, humility is not thinking of yourself that much at all in the first place. But there's this kind of self-pitying that happens. And, 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 oh, I know you could never, you could never be my friend ever again. You must hate me. You're like, no, no, I don't hate you. And they won't stop until basically you let them off the hook for whatever it was that they did in the first place that they should have been corrected on. It's just a different mechanism. They, they might, uh, oh, yes, so when I, when I, when I talk back to you, uh, that was the, the meanest thing I could possibly have done to you, and I'm so sorry. And you're like, no, 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 it really wasn't that bad. And it, you're, you're allowing them to kind of not be confronted because of the way they're responding. And so these are these two types of narcissists and the way they show up. But they all relate back to self-justification. You know, one person says, I am justified in my own eyes. The other one says, I can never be justified in my own eyes. It goes back to judging what is good and what is right and wrong. One says, I'm right, and the other one says, I'm wrong. But they neither are valid because you don't get to decide. Do you see how important this is? You don't get to decide that you're wrong either. And obviously, like, when you're confronted with, when you're wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't admit it. I'm saying you don't get to judge it. The Lord does. And then whether they're deflecting or they're exaggerating, they can't bear the shame. So they either make it so big that, of course, it's not true, or they act like it's someone else who should bear the shame. Guys, I, I know as I'm talking about this that you've seen this in others and some of you have seen it in yourself and it is, it's a real thing. You know, one of the challenges, and I, I shared that, that it, in, in the Dutch church, this study showed that up to, you know, somewhere between 70 and 90% of the pastors were narcissists and 100,000 narcissistic pastors in the American church is that it's not just a problem for the narcissist it's the problem that other people are putting these narcissists in charge. We're doing it. And we're leaving them in charge. 
And the church particularly has a pernicious problem with this. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people come from other churches and talk about their experiences with pastors. And I think, who put these crazy people in charge? If this is true, how did this happen? Now, I don't know what stories people tell when they leave here. Uh, hopefully nothing like those. But again, like I'm scared. Like I'm, I'm like shaking. Oh, no. So let's take a moment right here to just, we've been doing these practices. So there's a statement here that says what it's like us to do in regards to these realities. And if you would say it with me, whether you're at home or, or you're here, let's just say this together. Our people do not accept justifications. Instead, it is like us to love our enemies. Now, you might be asking, Stephen, what's the connection between we don't accept justification and we love our enemies? Well, here's the thing. When someone is self-justifying, they are acting like your enemy. And it is unloving to let them do it. Jesus doesn't let this happen. Right? What does Jesus do when he faced people who are self-justifying? He says, look, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, let me tell you a little story. There's this guy walking down the road. He's a Samaritan. He gets beat up by robbers. The priest walks by, does nothing. The Levite walks by and does nothing. I'm sorry, he's not a, he's not a Samaritan. Did I just say that? He's Jewish. The priest walks by, does nothing. The Levite walks by, does nothing. But the Samaritan, who should hate him, the Samaritan, who should be his enemy. By the way, the priest and the Levite, they don't help him because they're self-justified. They have places to go, people to see. They can't be unclean. They've got sacrificial responsibilities. They've got, you know, religious responsibilities. They can't touch someone who's bloody because they'll be unclean. But the, the Samaritan, who should be the enemy of this Jewish man, stops and cares for him and, and, and gives of himself to step into this man's hurt and pays for his care, does all the things that, that should be done by a close person, but he does it as someone who is far off as an enemy. So Jesus is saying, everyone's your neighbor. Anyone who has need is your neighbor. Don't self-justify. Don't tell me that you didn't have to love them because they're not your neighbor. They are your neighbor. And the more they, the more they are your enemy, the more they are your neighbor. We don't allow people to stay in self-righteousness. You know, when Jesus was eating with sinners, the, the righteous people would say, ah, oh, this Jesus guy. He invites sinners into his home, alcoholics, prostitutes, tax collectors, the worst of the worst. And he eats with them. And Jesus says, you know what, let me tell you a little story about a man with two sons. And his youngest son said, give me my inheritance now. And his father gave him his inheritance. It's like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead and I could just get my money. So his son takes his inheritance and he spends it prodigiously. He's the prodigal son. He's, he just overspends and overspends and overspends on all sorts of things that are horrible and immoral and, and you know, with, with no justification whatsoever until he runs out of money. And then he's slopping out pigsties and, 
and eating the food of the pigs because he's starving. And he says, even my father's servants live better than this. So he goes back, and from a distance, his father sees him. He breaks into a run. He embraces him. He puts a robe on his back. He puts a ring on his finger, and he says, let's throw a party. And you know what happens? The older son says, I never left, but I don't get a party. My father doesn't love me the way he loves this wayward son. And his father says, what are you, everything I have is yours. How could you believe that I don't care about you? And the older brother stands outside the party where the celebration is happening, where the son's been received by the father. And Jesus ends the story with us never knowing whether the son goes in to celebrate. The older brother is just as great a sinner as the younger brother. The difference is the younger brother knows he's a sinner and the older brother thinks he's righteous. Jesus doesn't leave people in their justifications. Jesus doesn't leave people in their self-righteousness. It is unloving. He confronts it. Often publicly. You see, there's two major problems with narcissism. If I can get this. The first is that narcissists believe they should not have to suffer or feel pain. So they will choose for someone else to suffer instead. So that means that if they're going to get caught in something and they can blame it on someone else, they will. That means if uh, there's going to be a failure in the business group, they'll try to pin the failure on another member of the group so that they live to see another day in the business. It means that if they have caused someone pain, they will not enter into that pain with them. They will let that person stay in their own pain because they shouldn't have to feel pain. This is, this is the underlying belief behind all that self-justification and that self-righteousness. This is what's behind that refusing to step into shame is the idea that I shouldn't have to feel pain. And the second problem is this one. Narcissists believe that weakness is bad. So they will avoid showing their weakness and they will exploit weakness in others. So often narcissists become predators. You know, uh, it has been said that human beings, that our natural state is to be predators and that by the grace of God we learn not to be. What is it that predators do in the wild? They eat other animals, right? Um, what is it that babies do to learn about the world? They stick everything in their mouths. Everything. Everything. How many of you known someone who's eaten bugs? And I mean, I ate a stink bug when I was a kid. You know? We joke in our house about the different stories of things that our girls have stuck in their mouths. Uh, it's, it's like we, we explore the world by trying to consume it. That's how we're, that starts our natural state. And then we have to be trained to explore the world without destroying it. Right? You teach your children, touch but don't break. B 
be gentle so, so you don't destroy it. Don't put that in your mouth. Uh, we, used to, we used to joke uh, with Hannah. We'd go to the store and I'd say, Hannah, look with your eyes, not with your hands. It's just a way of saying, don't break. My grandmother had this Christmas ornament with an angel playing a harp. And she would tell us, and they were glass. She said, don't touch these. Well, I wanted to know what it sounded like to play the harp. So, of course, I broke the harp. And I felt so bad. And what did I do? I put it on the back of the tree. I was like early training in narcissism. So, I shouldn't have to suffer. Weakness is bad. Antidote? Jesus shouldn't have to suffer. And he says, no, I will willingly suffer for you. He's the only one who shouldn't have to suffer. It's not true that we shouldn't have to suffer. The truth is we all should suffer more than we do. That's the truth. We should have to suffer more than we do. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to take some of your suffering and I'm going to bear it myself, even though I shouldn't have had to. And you know what? Weakness, I'm going to bear weakness too. The only one in the universe who isn't weak became weaker than every single one of us when he died on the cross. The only one in the universe who had all power, he's omnipotent, said, I'm going to be weaker than all of you. It is not true that we shouldn't have to suffer. It is not true that weakness is bad. We shouldn't prey upon weakness. What Jesus does is Jesus becomes weak to protect us in our weaknesses. Such a big difference. Now, I said there's two major problems, but here's the third one. And I already mentioned it. Churches and other organizations consistently put people like this in positions of power and influence. We do it over and over and over and over again. And if you remember our study, our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, uh, these often the people who look like the best leaders are the people who should be given no authority. Often. You know, in the early days of U.S. presidential politics, it was a major faux pas to campaign for yourself during the election. So, for example, we all know who our first president was, George Washington. George Washington relented to become the first president. Everyone wanted him to be the president, and he acquiesced. Now, I don't know if he actually acquiesced or if he really wanted to do it, but at least publicly, he acquiesced because it would have been off-putting for him to want to be president. And I remember even reading, uh, you know, certainly um, in the time of Lincoln, you know, Lincoln, he didn't campaign for himself. Other people campaigned for him. He stayed at home while other people went on the campaign trail to tell the country what a great president he would be. I remember reading the biography of Garfield. He, he didn't run at all. He was, you know, they actually, uh, he wasn't even one of the main contenders for the nomination. But because the people couldn't decide on anyone, he was like the fifth-ranked person that was least problematic for everybody because he was humble and unassuming. 
And he was certain. He told people, don't vote for me. But they voted for him anyway. This was expected. And there is this sense that the best leaders are the people who are forced into leadership, not who are clamoring to get into leadership. They happen into it, or they're called into it. Right? And this language we use in the church, this person is called to be our pastor. We've, call, we've issued a call for him to be our pastor, for her to be our pastor. But oftentimes, it's people trying. I mean, they're actively working to get these roles. And, um, you know, I, I can't help but be a little introspective here. I do remember that, that when I came here, I was not looking to be pastoring a church, and somebody tricked both of us into a meeting. Um, <laughs> Literally, I had no idea what meeting I was coming to. I just knew that I was coming to a meeting here. And Paul was there and others were there. And they didn't know why I was there. And I didn't know why, why I was there until about 15 minutes or 20 minutes into the meeting. I'm like, oh, I see. There was, someone was playing matchmaker. <laughs> but, you know, this is a problem that, that we, we put people in charge. So we need another area of practice. We need to look for people who protect others' weaknesses instead of exploiting others' weaknesses. We need to look, pe- look for people who are willing to be in weakness. You know, it's said that the most love in a community grows when people experience each other's weaknesses and then when they protect those weaknesses. And you know how Paul talks about the body is made up of many parts? And he says there are some parts that we cover He's making an allusion to the physical body, but he's also talking about the spiritual body. There are some parts that we cover because they, and we give them special honor because they're not visible. I think in some ways he's talking about our vulnerable, our vulnerable parts that we protect them and cover them and honor them. This is what Christ does. Christ honors the weak. Satan exploits the weak. You know, the Pharisees, he says, you Pharisees, you, you tell everyone to tithe on everything, but then when it's your time to tithe, you say, oh, this is committed to something else and I won't give it. So they exploit the weakness of others, but then they're not willing to enter into that weakness themselves of sacrificing their financial goods and, and so on. So let's say this together. Our people are willing to feel pain to protect others' weaknesses because Jesus did the same for me. Oh, for us, yes. And you know, I had actually meant, uh, when we did our first one, people do not, our people do not accept justifications. Instead, it is like us to love our enemies. And the practice would be something like this. Um, imagine you're in a small group and... Um, or, or imagine that you're talking to a leader, I'm sorry. A leader in the church. And they, they had, you were in a conversation, they just shut it down. They didn't like where it was going, and they just, they just shut it down. You said, hey, why are, why are you doing that? Well, I, I wouldn't have shut it down. It's just that, that you're wrong. This is not what we should be doing, so we're stopping this right here, and we're going to do it my way. How would we respond to that? Given everything that we've learned, given what we heard last week, how do you respond to that? 
I'm happy to hear ideas as well. You know, I think we have to say something like, you know what, Howard? Yeah, we appreciate your perspective, but we, we're going to decide as a group how to move forward. That's great. Hey, and we love your input. You're part of the group. Be a part of the decision, but it's not going to be you make the decision. You know, that's not how it's going to be. Um, and then you think about this other one we just did. Our people are willing to feel pain to protect others' weaknesses because Jesus did the same for us. You know, imagine you're in a small group and I think we've seen this happen. And someone in the small group gets some pushback from somebody. And then they make kind of a sarcastic remark about that person to make them look smaller and make themselves feel better. How would we respond to that? By the way, would you feel incredibly uncomfortable in that situation? Would a lot of you be tempted to say nothing and just pretend it didn't happen? Yeah. That's, that's what people are expecting. They're going to they're gonna act like that and no one's going to say anything and it never gets addressed. They're counting on it. I think we have to say something like, hey, it's not like, a, it's not, that's not what we do. It's not like us to do that. We don't, we don't belittle people to make ourselves look better. And we're not going to stand for that as a group. But we would love for you to be a part of this group, but what we do is we honor one another, and when we get pushback, we accept the criticism, and we take it to the Lord. Something like that. So I'm gonna I'm moving towards a closing here. Um, the only way that can work, by the way, in those groups, is if the other people don't chicken out when someone steps up to the plate. Because the thing about self-justification and self-righteousness and deflecting and all these things is what's going to happen is you say, hey, we don't act like that. And they say, I wasn't doing that. That's not what I was doing. You misunderstood. So then the person next to you says, no, I was here. I saw it. That's what you were doing. No, you two are wrong. And the third person says, no, I saw it too. You definitely did that. You belittled this other person. And that's wrong. And we're not going to stand for that. And then the fourth person says, I saw it too. And the fifth person says, I saw it too. And then all of a sudden you're in a situation where your alarm is going off in the middle of your sermon <laughs> because we're not usually here this late. All of a sudden you're in a situation as, as a narcissist where you either have to lose your entire community or admit you are wrong. And then they're in a situation where they have to face pain either way. And that is a necessary dilemma for a person who's unwilling to face pain. Is they have to see that both of their choices will lead to pain. And they have to decide which one will lead to the least amount of pain and the most good to come soon rather than later. And hopefully they decide that it's being humble and admitting their failure and repenting and seeking forgiveness. So a mature community is needed for this to happen. And you have to be modeling humility. You have to be modeling accepting critique and pushback and challenge. 
And as a community, you have to resist self-justification because we don't accept self-justification because only Christ justifies us. And we have to avoid condemnation. We talked about different types of confrontation last week. There's healthy, courageous confrontation, and then there's this toxic shaming that can happen. And we have to work as a group to correct self-justification. So we don't just not allow it to happen, but we correct it when it happens. And we use love-based and gentle correction. And so we get something like this. It is like us to stand together in love, humility, and courage in the face of a narcissist for our good and for theirs. Let's say that again. It is like us to stand together in love, humility, and courage in the face of a narcissist for our good and for theirs. You know, this is why it is actually loving to correct people when it's appropriate. It's because it's for their good too. This is why it's loving to stand up against these things because it's for their good too. It's not just self-protective. What, when you stand up to a, a narcissist, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to bear some pain right now because it will be painful to protect their weakness because being a narcissist is inherently a weakness even as it often presents itself as a strength or, or we could even say acting like a nar- narcissist if that's too strong is a weakness even when it presents itself as a strength you know in Matthew 18 Jesus because he's brilliant lays out everything that we've just said he says, look, if someone sins, if your brother or sister sins, go to them and point out their error. And if, you've won, and if they agree with you, you've won them over, great. But if they don't, go with two or three people. Just take two or three people with you and confront them again. If they still don't respond well, take it before the whole church. The whole community needs to be involved in this. And I have shared with you, I think, that we've only had, since I've been here, we've only had to do that once. And it was with a leader who was a narcissist. And we had, to, we had to confront him as a community. And he still would not acknowledge what he had done or was doing consistently. So we had to ask him to leave or to step down from leadership. But here's what Jesus says, because it's scary to do that, right? And it doesn't always work out the way we'd want. But here's what Jesus says. And sometimes we use this verse to talk about like small prayer gatherings, which, you know, is fine, but it's not really what it's talking about. He says, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Who are the two or three? It's these two or three witnesses Old Testament, do not condemn anyone without two or three witnesses. If you have to confront someone a second time, go with two or three witnesses, and and eventually the whole church. But even if two or three are gathered in my name, you're not alone in this. I'm not going to abandon you in this very challenging, difficult process. You know, the person who makes it to the church level of this kind of discipline process, by definition, they kind of have to be a narcissist. If you don't get it when three people come to you, and it has to go to the whole church, 
and you're willing to stand before the whole church to self-justify yourself, then by definition, you, you, you're, you're a narcissist. And God says, I'm going to be with you in that. Now, that, those are strong statements. There are examples where that's not the case. There are examples where people are wrongfully charged. But most of the time, this is what's going on. And so, you know, what I would just say is God is promising to work through our community to change even the most intractable character flaws. Whatever the, the, the challenge is, God is not going to abandon us. He will work with us as we work with them. And we can trust him to work with us when we act together. Jesus says, when two or three are gathered, I am with them. He says, don't do this alone. You know, start alone, because if you're dealing with someone who's not facing this challenge, one will be fine. Right? I mean, how many times have you gone to someone and you said, hey, this happened and it, and it hurt, or this was wrong, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Great. Yeah, that's what, it, that's what healthy people need. One person. Someone who's kind of struggling with this tendencies, they need two or three. Someone who's over here on the spectrum, full-blown, they need a whole church. And if they still don't repent, then your hands are tied. They need to step away, and they're going to they're feel the pain of their choice. And that's the only thing that will ever help them overcome this, because it has to be more painful to stay where they are than the pain that they're trying to avoid in the first place. So we can trust God to work through us when we act together. And again, going back where we started, if our faith is worth anything, if the power of the Spirit is anything, then God can deal with folks like this. And God can deal with this in me, and God can deal with this in you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, not necessarily the funnest topic or the easiest topic, uh, but a necessary one, Father. And I thank you that today... Uh, you, you gave us the chance to, to look at this together and to, and to see what your word says about confronting this really serious and difficult challenge. And Scott, I pray that as we, as we close out today, that our hearts would not shrink back from this challenge, but we would step up to it. Lord, that we would see that if we play it safe, if we... Um, try to take the easy road. Lord, we're never going to go where you want us to go. And all our, even, even the things that we prayed about earlier today, there, we won't be able to overcome certain problems because we're playing it too safe. So God, we want to be reckless. We want to be bold. We want to be courageous in the way, Lord, that we follow your lead. The way that we submit to the challenges that we find in your word to, to confront people in their sin. Lord, the way that we can be reckless in embracing our own weakness in front of others, even though it scares us to death. So that, God, we can change. Not just someone else can change, but I can change. Lord, this is, this is your heart's desire, that we would submit ourselves fully to you in this no matter which side of the equation we're on. It takes great faith on both sides. It takes great faith for those who are struggling with these, uh, this character flaw. 
And it takes great faith for those who are challenging it in someone else. So God, we put it before you and we trust you with everything that we